Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time of family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. All right. Uh, so uh, here we are in session number six. Uh, we have uh, been, for the last six, last six weeks, attempting to build a, a bridge Getting to the point to where we are um, trying to get into this study of church history, right? And you'll know when we're, I'm not going to say we're not there yet because we are, like we're, we're getting there. But you'll know we're, we're technically there when we start talking about that first church in, in Revelation chapter 2, right? That, that Ephesus church, okay? And church period specifically. So we're going to get there. Um, but over the last um, five weeks, uh, we, we've been working our way to the book of Acts, okay? And what we said last week is that the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles provides for us the account of the church, all right? Uh, as Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that it is on the apostles and the prophets that the foundation is built, Okay. Now, Jesus Christ, the same verse says, is, is the chief cornerstone, but that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Okay. And so if we're going to understand and, and get a foundation, which is the apostles, then we ought to be working our way through to and through the acts of the apostles. And, and, and that's why we say the book of Acts is the foundation of this study. And, and that foundation is so vitally important uh, when we're constructing a building, right? Um, when, you ha when you're constructing a building, we've talked about this, you have to have a solid and a strong foundation. And so it is with this study. If, if, if your foundation is messed up, uh, so will everything that you put on top of that be. And so uh, before we put up any walls, before we start doing all the other stuff that needs to be done uh, for this building, we have to make sure that foundation is sound and solid. It's inspected. There aren't any cracks in it. There isn't any fault in it. Uh, um, really, it needs to be what Second Timothy 2.15 says. It needs to be rightly divided from a biblical standpoint. 
And that's what we're going toward. Uh, we know that we're told to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And that's our goal. We, we do not want to be ashamed. And, and I'll, I'll submit to you, there are many who write on church history. There are many who study church history, who get majors uh, or degrees in church history through, through colleges and seminaries and whatnot. Um, and I'm afraid in the eyes of the Lord, they're ashamed. And not in my eyes, but in his eyes, uh, because they are not rightly. And I'm not saying that, that I'm the only one, that you know, we're the only ones. But by and large, I mean, I think you just have to look around maybe just a couple feet around you to, to really, not the person next to you, but to, you know, to not very far to see that in the church today, friends, there is so much going on that it is wrongly divided, yet think, thinking it, it's rightly divided. And it, it's very subtly uh, deceiving. Um, and so last week, uh, when, as we were going through the book of Acts, uh, we, we, we done, we've done this for a couple weeks now, but we covered specifically two key things last week about the book of Acts. And before we jump uh, too much into those, uh, I gave you this warning, and I want to give it to you again, warning slash encouragement, that we tend to be so familiar with certain things that we miss them. And, and, and I want to just caution you not to be so familiar with these two things, because some of us could probably just fill these blanks in because remember them from last week, or Pastor Frank has taught, taught on them, or Pastor Robert, you've said them before, and, and you know, so-and-so has taught on this. Okay, but it's that important. And so I want us to make sure that we're getting these things. And so the first, so, so, so guard yourself against that. And the first thing that we talked about was, number one, the book of Acts is not a doctrinal statement of church theology. Uh, it is, in fact, an historical account of the Acts of the Apostles. If you go to Acts chapter 1, before the very first word, and you look at the, the title, uh, it is called the Acts of the Apostles. And he's telling us that in the very uh, name of the book, okay? Uh, now, though we, we see that statement, right, uh, it is not a doctrinal statement of church theology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 2 Timothy 3.15 does tell us that all, A-L-L, all Scripture is what? Profitable for what? For doctrine first, and then for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, the doctrine, though, has to be rightly divided, okay? All doctrine in the book of Acts is profitable. Everything is profitable for doctrine, but it's how that doctrine is applied and how it's divided, okay? Uh, we do not go uh, to Leviticus to find out exactly how we're supposed to um, offer the sin offering and the trespass offering and the peace offering and the burn off. We don't do that so we can go to, over to the tabernacle and, and do it the right way. Or when we're healed of a disease, we go present ourselves to the priest to be called to be labeled cleansed. Like, we don't have to do those things because that's doctrine, though it's, oh, or it, it is teaching something. It's a practice, but it's not directly applied to us as the church. Um, so, so I think we can all agree with that, right? And then the, the second thing uh, is that the book of Acts is a transitional book, okay? And I'm not going to go through all of those different transitions we talked about last week. They're online. They're in our notes uh, if you take those. Um, but I do want to hang on, hang on the rim of something I did talk about last week and take you a little further into that because it is so critical. Uh, it is the key in making the right divisions in the book of Acts, okay? And that is the, the, the difference between the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. And that is where we are going to go the, tonight and uh, next week, uh, more than likely, uh, as we get our way to this study of, of church history uh, proper, 
Um, and so I don't have these verses up here. Um, I just have them here in my notes. So I want you to, because I want you to turn there. Uh, if you're not in Acts chapter 1, go ahead and get there real quick. Uh, I, I mentioned this last week, but just uh, by way of um, review and, and um, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. In Acts chapter 1, uh, those first seven verses or so. Uh, we see uh, where, where this is the time after Jesus has ascended or, or resurrected before he has ascended to the Father, and he is uh, spending uh, those 40 days with uh, the apostles, and, and man, he is he's teaching them all things uh, of the scriptures and how they pertain and teach of him, how they speak of him, and uh, he's doing this. Verse 3 uh, says that uh, not only is he doing this, but he showed by showing himself alive after his passion, but he did so by many infallible proofs, friends. Not just many proofs, they're infallible, okay? And so watch, being seen of them 40 days, verse 3 says, and he's talking to them, he's teaching them, he's investing in them, and he's teaching them something very specific. He, he's, he's teaching them things that are pertaining to what? To the kingdom of God, and so uh, verse uh, 4 and 5, and then so, so Jesus is, is going with them. And in verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Okay? And so back in verse 3, he's talking about a particular kingdom. Uh, but here in verse number 6, uh, Jesus, or excuse me, the, the disciples are asking in return about a kingdom. But it is not the same kingdom. Biblically speaking, they're asking about a different kingdom, and we unpacked it last night. Uh, but just to illustrate this for you, flip back with me to the book of Luke, uh, cha- chapter 24. This also is not up there. Luke 24, 45. Because I, I want to really drive this point home that these men had God in flesh opening their eyes and teaching them things. They didn't have Pastor Robert or Pastor Frank. They didn't have any man. They had God in the flesh who, after three and a half years of spending with them, was finally fully opening their eyes to these things. And so it says there in Luke 24, 45, then opened he, this is that same time frame of the early verses of uh, Acts 1, by the way, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So Jesus has opened their understanding. He has made it clear as the nose on their faces. Uh, look back uh, in the same chapter there, uh, verse, um, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they knew him. Verse 32, Uh, They said, he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures. So you you can't get around this reality that, man, Jesus is no um, uh, ineffective teacher. He he, he is opening their eyes in complete understanding and revelation. Okay, they they are getting this. And so in Acts chapter 1, when they are asking this question, uh, for that simple fact alone of how he has opened their eyes, there is no way that they miss what he was teaching. Uh, plus, if you notice in verse 7, uh, his response to them wasn't one of rebuke. It, it wasn't, oh, no, 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 uh, no, listen, I, I told you, da 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 No, don't ask. It, no, he, he just said, he answered them, but he said, it, it's not the time. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And so it was a valid question. It was a good question. 
And so we see these two kingdoms being discussed here. And so um, last week we unpacked this. What is the kingdom of God? It is a spiritual kingdom, Romans chapter 14, Luke 17, uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and 15, John 3, 3. Uh, we, we unpacked all those and, and how the scriptures teach it is that spiritual kingdom, right? Uh, and then we looked at other verses and passages that answered the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? Or as we see in Acts 1, the kingdom of Israel, okay? And that is a physical and literal kingdom, uh, Matthew 3, uh, Matthew 11, Acts 1, like we said. And if you notice, as I mentioned in Acts chapter 1, Verse 7, Jesus said to them, them, it was uh, not for them to know the times and the seasons, yet Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2 that I have no need to write to you the things pertaining to the times and the seasons, for you know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. So, So somewhere between those two events, something changed from it's not for you to know to you know perfectly. All right, so, so something's going on there. And if we're going to understand what has happened in church history and really discern history biblically, we have to understand what happened when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven went into a split somewhere in the book of Acts. And so we're going to go back and begin to trace the kingdom of God and trace the kingdom of heaven so we can begin to understand what this thing is all about. And, and, and before we do that, I want to just kind of call a time out and uh, come up for air just a little bit um, to remind you why we're doing this, okay? We're spending all this time building this foundation, and we've, we haven't gotten any, any walls up yet, as I mentioned earlier. And, and uh, just so we don't get like the kids who you're driving to Disney World, are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Just so we don't get to that point, um, I just know that we have to have this foundation. And, and when we get to these church history things, I think you will be grateful that you have that because you will be able to discern these things and see them even without me calling them out and pointing them out to you, okay? Um, So uh, we have to get these things of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And the reason this is so important is because not too long after the book of Acts is written, or excuse me, takes place, I should say, uh, there's going to rise up a group of people and they're going to call themselves a church, and they're going to they're gonna go back to Peter and say that Peter was the rock. And we, as this church, trace our lines back to Peter. And if you remember what Jesus said to Peter, uh, that he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So you see, we, they will say, are the ones entrusted with this physical kingdom. And that's what gives us the right to do what we did all through history and kill, kill anyone who doesn't believe what we believe because we have the keys to the kingdom. And, and, and if you don't understand, friend, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you won't understand why they thought they were doing God a service by killing people for believing what you believe tonight. And, and, and they came along and said, anathema, hatred, curse, loathsome, to anybody who doesn't believe what we believe. And, and we'll unpack all that. But it's all throughout their own history record. And because they have the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and listen, that's why we're going back and taking so long to get there because when we get to that point in our study and you begin to, to see those things, you'll have no problem uh, discerning that. So 
Listen, uh, if, if you grab on to the things that we're going to just introduce tonight, then, then I think um, money back guaranteed. Whatever y'all pay to get in the door, I'll double it back to you if, uh, if this doesn't happen. But listen, you will, will see your Bible in a, in a brand new way. Um, if you can grab and understand these things. And these things we're going to talk about tonight, um, for, for many of us, or at least some of us, may or may not be brand new. Again, it might be a review. I feel like we have people that are um, of different, on the, on, the, on the spectrum in different places, so to speak. And so wherever you are on that, I mean, as we grow in these things, whether we are just seeing these for the first time, or uh, we feel like we kind of got that, and maybe it's just a review for us, whatever that is. These things change the way I see the Bible, and, and, and I have no doubt they will for you too. And you'll be able to identify these kingdoms um, all throughout the Word of God. Uh, so, so that's where I want to go with you tonight, uh, the importance of understanding these two kingdoms. Because the theme of the Bible, as I think most of us know, is these kingdoms. All right, that's your next blank there. I think the theme of the Bible, friends, like the, the point, the plot, the purpose, okay? And, and as Americans and, and as 21st century Christians— um, for the most part, especially as Laodiceans, I think that kind of freaks us out, uh, generally speaking, because we think, or we like to think, that life is about us. We think that people driving on the interstate are there for us. We think that husbands, our wives, are there for us, and wives, your, your husbands, are there for you, and, and, and to serve you, and to just everything that you, you me, 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 like, that's kind of just how we are wired, and when it comes to the Bible, it's no different. We think that we are the focus of this book. And though salvation is so incredibly important, I mean, it is, it is only because of your salvation that you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, to the kingdom of God, right? So it's only because of your salvation that that can happen. So that's a huge deal. But that, that, and that may be, and hopefully is, like the, the best day of your life when, when you were translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son by the, because of the cross and the blood that was shed. But, but I think we get this, that, that isn't the focus of God's book. And, and that wasn't the best day of his life, so to speak, right? Um <laughs> when his son was mutilated on a cross for his enemies, right? You know, we were enemies of God before salvation. We were at enmity with him. I mean, that would not be the best day of my life if my daughter was killed for someone else. No matter how much love that took, like that just would not be <laughs> the best day of my life. But you know what the best day for him is? It's when he comes back on this planet, ruling and reigning over a kingdom and receiving the glory that is due his name. And all nations of the earth are coming before him and bowing before him, and he's receiving praise and glory. That is the day, and that is the theme of this book. And listen, that's what it's all about. And, and God's threefold plan, we talked about this in weeks past, right? He has a plan for the universe, for the earth, and for your life. God's threefold plan is actually the establishment and the fulfillment of those two kingdoms. I think that's the next uh, line there on your notes. It, listen, grab that. It's the establishment and the fulfillment of those two kingdoms. 
And so I want us to, to get a holistic view. If I'm going to say that the theme of the Bible is these kingdoms, don't just let me say that and get away with it, okay? Like, like let's look at that, all right? So how the Bible begins uh, in eternity past is a struggle over a throne. We've gone there in, in, in weeks past. We're actually going to go back there and unpack it a little more tonight. Uh, but the Bible opens with Genesis 1-1, Isaiah 14, with a struggle over a throne. The Bible ends in Revelation 22 and verse 5, uh, in eternity future, where someone, again, is sitting on a throne. And everything, friend, between the beginning and the end, between Genesis and Revelation, is a struggle over who will sit on that throne. That is what it's about. We've got to get that in our mind, okay? Now, this could be a series in and of itself, okay? It, it won't, uh, because I, I just want to try to give you enough uh, to where you can discern these things, but not so much to where we, we just lose, lose focus of where we're going, okay? But before I do that, I want to remind you, or maybe for the first time teach you, if you're listening online or uh, you're here and you're not familiar with this uh, key or rule of Bible study, um, it's one that will um, inevitably, they'll all change your relationship with the Bible. Uh, but, but this one in particular will. Uh, this is a key that has to do with your attitude when it comes to the Word of God, okay? And we talked about the key of David uh, and, and the love for the Word of God, uh, and 100% amen. But I want to submit to you something that we're going to call the attitude factor in Bible study, okay? And, and basically, your attitude toward the Word of God will determine your aptitude in the Word of God. And I remember the first time I heard that, it was actually years back, um, it, it just like, I, I didn't realize, like, I, I didn't have a critical or an ugly or, or a, um, cynical attitude toward the Bible before. But I'll tell you, I didn't have the attitude toward the Bible then that I do now. And I'm hoping in years to come, I don't have the attitude then that I do not. I'm hoping that grows. But listen, your attitude toward it, before you even open it, how you think it uh, about it, and how you treat it in your heart and with your mind and with your actions, your attitude toward it will determine your aptitude in it, okay? And the point is, and I know you're trying to get these blanks, but don't miss it. You need to always, and this, <laughs> Pastor Frank has been in this position. I've been in this position. I'm sure you have. You may at one time hear something in this church where this is the case. You need to always be prepared to change. And that says whenever. It should say whatever, I think. Whatever you have been taught or what you believed when it goes contrary to what the Bible says. Never make the Bible uh, line up with what you believe. Always line yourself up with what it says, okay? And, and, and I think that we can get on board with that. I think we can amen that. I think we, we can love that principle. But it truly is easier said than done. It, it really is, okay? Because we like that principle all the way up until the point where uh, we are confronted with something that we've always believed. And it kind of just makes us step back or rubs us the wrong way or kind of just, I don't know, I just think kind of a thing. And, and you know us here at One Baptist, like, right, if we're going to let the book be the book, then, then we've got to step back and, and let it do its thing. 
and we have to bow the knee to it, okay? And so whether that's tonight or in weeks or months to come, Thursday night, Sunday morning, uh, I just want to put that before you and remember the attitude factor, okay? Um, and so remember that as we go, as, as I try to take us this evening into a, a little uh, journey into eternity past, okay? Because if we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, we have to go uh, into eternity past, all right? And so the Bible, in your notes there, opens with God reigning as a king, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. Right, right from the get-go, we are met with the source of all creation, with the source of all life, this supreme reigning king. Okay, uh, look, look at Psalm chapter 10 and verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished uh, out of his land. Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 74 and verse 12. For God is my King of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so from the very beginning, we see God is king. Okay, and, and so I want to, what is he the king of? Well, number one, he is the king over the kingdom of heaven. And as king over the kingdom of heaven he would be the sovereign ruler over all the created beings, the stars, the constellations, galaxies, all that. Okay, Psalm chapter 148 and verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Uh, verse 3 there in Psalm 148 uh, through 5. Praise ye him. Watch sun and moon. Praise him all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, ye waters that be above the heavens. Uh, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Listen, God is reigning over a physical, literal kingdom that he himself created. All right, that's your blanks there. He is ruling, reigning over a physical, literal kingdom that he himself created. Um. So, he's, so he, he's king over the kingdom of heaven. But as the Bible opens, he's also king over another kingdom. He is king over the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. Uh, and as king over this kingdom, he, he obviously is the head ruler. First um, Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15 calls him the blessed or blessed and only potentate. That word potentate meaning a royal minister of great authority. Uh, he, he is the only potentate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And, and as king over the kingdom of God, God is reigning over the spiritual beings that he created, right? So there's the physical entities, and then there's the spiritual entities or beings that he created that he's ruling over uh, as well. Uh, it's what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Okay, those are spiritual ranking beings against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
And we see this, y'all, in Psalm 148 as well. Again, I'll take you back to verses 1 and 2. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Look at verse 2. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. Listen, make sure you, 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 you have this. God creates the physical heavens, okay, right? And as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, all right? So he creates the physical heavens, and, and I think we've gotten this, that biblically speaking, heavens is not just where God dwells, right? We, we get there are physical heavens, the first, second heaven. Um, so, so there's that, but he's also created spiritual beings, right? Those angels that host to inhabit these heavens. Your blank there is inhabit. And, and we call these spiritual beings angels, Okay, but as you go through the Bible, you begin to see something very uh, interesting. Because in the Old Testament, these beings or these angels are often called gods or sons of God. Okay, I'll, I'll show it to you. Psalm 136 and verse 2. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. And, and that, that, that word there in your blank, gods, means magistrates of the supreme God. Okay, I, I think a lot of times we just think of gods as maybe idols or false gods. Though the Bible uses that term to describe such entities, Listen to these verses and, and really get what they're saying. Psalm 138, verse 1, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. Who are these gods? The God of gods. They are the spiritual beings that God has created in eternity past. Check out Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. Uh, the context there is where, where God is confronting Job, as it were, uh, and putting them in the hot seat and saying, Job, you're coming at me with all these questions and all these accusations. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and look, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay, so this is the context here it is the creation of the world. And we're actually going to circle back and come back to this toward the end of, of our time tonight. But I just want you to see how, how these angelic beings are called morning stars. In Psalms are called gods. Here in Job 38 are called the sons of God. Isaiah 14, 12, how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And it's interesting in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, 
Satan, of course, is called the God of this world. Very interesting. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, uh, uh, the serpent is coming before Eve. And watch this. I, I feel like I've heard this uh, preached or taught um, spoke wrongly because he doesn't entice her with the temptation of being as God. He didn't say, you shall be as God. He says, for God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Okay, so a couple things to note there. Number one, if you look in that context, Eve didn't, she wasn't like, what do you mean gods? Who, who are gods? What, what, God, what are, she didn't question that. She knew the angelic beings that were walking with them in the garden. Like she knew what these were. Uh, number two, there were no gods, uh, in, as we like to think of them, uh, as idols or false gods in this time frame, in this context. There was no Balaam. There was no, n- n- none of that stuff. And so he's enticing her w- with this, this um, elevated spiritual experience of, of, of a different class of beings, a spiritual type of beings. I don't have this in your notes or on the PowerPoint, but I want you to turn there and see this. And hopefully, if you're kind of maybe like, mm, kind of on the fence on this, maybe this will nail it for you. Psalm chapter 8. Turn there with me. Yeah, you got to use your Bibles tonight. Amen. There you go, Jim. Yeah, there it is, Bill. All right, Psalm chapter 8. If I can ever find it, 8 comes after 7, okay? Yeah. Look at there in verse 1. Look at that's night. Okay. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent uh, is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visitest him. Watch it. For thou hast made him, who? Man. A little lower than the angels, and has crowned him with glory and honor. And that word angels, friend, is the same word translated gods. In Psalm 136, verse 2, and 138, and verse 1. And so I want you to get the picture that in the beginning, God creates a universe to display his glory and his power. And he creates this whole host of spiritual beings over which to rule it. And they're called gods and they're called sons of God. And watch what God does here now. He puts one cherub over these spirit beings that are called gods or sons of God. And so, listen, God is king over the kingdom of heaven, and he's king over the kingdom of God. But, but he anoints Lucifer, the anointed cherub, rulership over these kingdoms. And Ezekiel 28, listen, uh, is a key Old Testament passage uh, that teaches us about uh, Lucifer and eternity past prior to Adam. Watch verse 11 uh, through 15. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man... Take up a lamentation upon the king. So again, 
a king, a kingdom, a throne, like, get it, the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest of the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, right? And, and I think we've been around long enough to know that he, he's talking about the power behind the man, okay? He, he's, he's, we'll see clearly in just a moment, he's not just talking about the physical man, the, the king of Tyrus, so to speak, because there in verse 13, not only was he in verse 12, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, but verse 13 says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the, the sardius, topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that I was created. Lucifer, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And I, God says, have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So listen, God lets us know again that we're dealing with a king here, uh, not just a man. And, and again, I want to draw your attention back to verses 12 through 14. Look how he's described. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. And so God anoints this king. And, and I want you to notice, right in verse 13, he's there in, 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 in eternity past, pre-Adam, in the Garden of Eden. And so God has placed Lucifer in authority over the earth. And we know in, in uh, Isaiah 14 and verse 13 that he has a throne. Okay, because uh, he has said in his heart that he, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And so what you have here is a king on the earth ruling from a throne. And he has been given authority over the kingdom of heaven. He is king over a physical, literal, visible, earthly domain. Okay, the garden, uh, from the Garden of Eden is where his throne is. All right, and I mentioned this last week uh, when we were uh, there on Zoom, but I think it just bears repeating because a lot of people get tripped up on this because we tend to think of the word heaven as something heavenly. And, and that's, that's a valid question, right? How can it be the kingdom of heaven if it is physically on this earth? And, and we said, and again, I just want to reiterate, I put in your notes again, from God's perspective, the earth is one planet in the physical heavens. The kingdom of heaven is a literal, physical, visible kingdom, and the earth has simply been chosen to be that, that capital, so to speak, the, the, the base of operations, if you will. And through it, Lucifer will rule over all the planet, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. Okay, so, so there's that. But not only that, not just the kingdom of heaven, but if you look back at Ezekiel 28, 13, he's also been given authority over the kingdom of God. Because verse 13 says... Uh, that he is composed of these beautiful jewels and stones. And maybe we remember, hopefully, that 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us that God is light, right? And in him is no darkness at all. And so what we, we have here is the light of God is passing 
excuse me, through Lucifer, whose name, by the way, means light bearer, the light and the glory of God is passing through him, this incredible blinding light, the same light that uh, Saul witnessed on the road to Damascus. Uh, Going through that anointed cherub that covers the throne of God, that's what that means, and and it it is um, just dispersing that and magnifying it with all those beautiful gems and, and stones. And he's also made of beautiful instruments, right? The end of verse 13 there talks about that in Ezekiel 28. And as the, the bearer of God's light and the instruments that God has given him, uh, they were actually physically part of his body, like he was made of these things. Lucifer would lead all the sons of God in the worship and praise of God. That, that, that's why Job 38, 7 talks about them singing for joy, shouting for joy, right? Who was leading that? Well, that was Lucifer. They're, they're singing and shouting for joy, and Lucifer has been given the crown to rule over them and to lead them in the worship and the praise of God who is high above all else. And so he's a king, not just that physical over that physical kingdom, but a king over the principalities and the powers and the spiritual beings, that God has created. And so at this time, the kingdom would have been full of nothing but beauty as the light of God goes through the anointed cherub and beautiful music and peace and righteousness and joy. I mean, that's what Romans 14, uh, 17 says that the kingdom of God is. Beyond what our minds can even imagine, and it's hard to know just how long Lucifer reigned over those kingdoms. Um, but Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen tells us that he reigned over the kingdoms until iniquity was found in him. And I want to emphasize the fact that the Bible says it was found in the, it was found in him. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But if you look at Isaiah 14, Verses 12 through 14, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said, not with thy mouth, it was in him. Thou hast said, in thine heart. He didn't even have to verbalize it. Here's what he said in his heart. I will ascend into heaven. From where? from where he was reigning already, from his current assignment, from the Garden of Eden, from his throne, he wanted a different throne. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the side of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And you know what? His desire has never changed. Now, we'll cover this in more depth when we get into it in our study, but We just saw how Lucifer got it in his heart that he said within himself, I will be worshiped as God. I will be like the most high. And that desire, friend, doesn't and has it and won't change. All the way from eternity past on into the tribulation period until he is put into the bottomless pit, that desire will not change. He has always wanted to sit where God sits. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4 says that it is him through that Antichrist who will oppose and exalteth himself against all that is called God or that is worshipped, watch, so that he, as God, 
sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He is always vying for the worship of people. And what you see in Second Thessalonians is the same thing we see in Isaiah 14. Okay, and watch. So Lucifer loses the position. This is in your notes. He loses the position that he held over the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And he, he, he loses his position as the covering cherub. And what happens is he becomes that old serpent called the devil and Satan, as Revelation 12, 9 says. And that's how he goes from being light bearer, uh, Lucifer, to being Satan, the adversary. Okay? And again, I know that we've talked about some of these things in the past, and maybe you're like, oh, I know this, or I feel like I know it, or I'm confused by this, or you know, whatever. Again, wherever we are. But man, please, j- just, just grab on to this, because if you're, if you're thinking... Again, wherever you are on that spectrum, if you're thinking, you may be thinking, okay, so we've got the earth, and we've got the heavens, the physical kingdom, uh, the spiritual kingdom, the sons of God. We have all that. I'm seeing that. But when did all this happen? And so I I want us to to, to look at placing Lucifer's fall biblically because there are certain boundaries that we have to set. Okay, because from a biblical standpoint— we have to recognize that this, this uh, exaltation of his pride and him being cast down because the iniquity was found in him, it had to have been sometime before Adam because when he shows up to tempt Eve in Genesis 3.1, he's obviously lost his position, okay? So it had to happen. I'm not sure if you ever thought about that. Like, like, why is there a snake in the garden, in a perfect garden, and why is this snake trying to, or this serpent trying to tempt Eve? Like, what, what does he have going on with her? Like, what is it, what's he even trying to do there? Why not just leave her alone? Okay. Um, oh, he's the devil. He's always been bad. Oh, not really. So it has to be before then, but it must be after Genesis 1-1. Because before Genesis 1-1, it was just God. There was no heaven. There was no earth. There was no physical kingdom. There were nothing. Okay, so, so it, let's just kind of reason for a second, all right? Most of us are familiar with Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, for the most part, we know that whenever it happened, uh, th- this, this um, Lucifer's fall, it's not plainly stated in the Bible, okay? It's not as plain as the nose on your face, right? I mean, I'm not saying that we're stupid. It's just, it doesn't say it right there, black and white. Oh, Genesis 1, blah, 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 says it right there. Like, it just doesn't. And there are many things in the Bible that are like that. But we have to compare spiritual with spiritual. We have to labor. We have to work. We have to sift through some things. God, God is hiding treasures in his word. And, and they are reserved for those who are willing to, to labor for it. Okay? Um, so I'm going to share with you what I believe the scriptures teach on this. And um, it's your job to, to be a Berean and to, to search the scriptures and see if these things be so. Uh, I hope that you see that I will try to provide you nothing but the scriptures, so I don't just give you my opinion, right? I know none of you are here for that, which is good, uh, but you're right. That's, that's my wife, right? She's like, I get that enough at home. <laughs> um, but comparing spiritual with spiritual, comparing scripture with scripture, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, so think about what the Bible says. Just stop right there. 
Think about what the Bible says that God's creation even does. Like, what was the purpose? What is the purpose of God's creation? I hope your mind might go to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Because it is by the uh, physical things and the visible things that we know and understand the invisible things. Verse 19 there, or excuse me, 20 says, For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, friends. Uh, They are understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And listen, the physical creation, it allows us to look at it and see the characteristics of God himself. We can see the beauty and the precision and the the, the, um, harmony of nature. And it itself testifies of the very characteristics of God. And so you would expect it to be a perfect creation. You would expect it to reflect his characteristics, right? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, I referenced it earlier, um, but there it is. Uh, and note the context there in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, okay? So we have a beginning context, um, and then I included the whole passage there for us, contextually speaking. He's talking about there in verse, uh, verse the end of verse 1, uh, the word of life. Verse 2, which was life was manifested. We've seen it, bear witness of it. Uh, verse 3, so we've seen declared unto you uh, that ye might have fellowship with us. Verse 4, these things we write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message that we heard of him and declare, listen, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy 6.16 describes it um, as immortality dwelling in the light, listen, which no man can approach unto. Like that is the light of glory of God. Uh, Psalm 104 verse 2 says that he covers himself with light. And so when we're reading through Genesis chapter 1 and we get to verse 2, we see that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And with what we just saw about God and his characteristics and who he is, that, that ought to sound a little strange to us. It ought to make us stop for a moment and think, man, for a perfect God, a holy God, a God of unapproachable light, to create something without form and void? Because if God created the initial creation in a formless void with darkness all upon it, that creation reflects a nature that God does not have. And so when God makes something, he does it to reflect his glory and his nature. Okay? So... Just hang with me for a moment, because I want to take you, and we're not going to go to all these places. I'm going to reference them in your notes, and I'm just going to reference them up here. But I, I want you to see what happens when we take that phrase of Genesis 1-2, without form, and we trace it through the Bible, letting the Bible provide its own definitions. You would see that it's used in Deuteronomy 32-10 as waste, It's used in Job chapter 6, verse 18, as nothing. In Job 26, 7, it's used as empty place. Isaiah 29, 10, 
calls it a thing of naught, N-O-U-G-H-T. In Isaiah 24, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 41, this, this very same word is confusion. And, and I thought that 1 Corinthians 14.33 says that God is not the author of confusion. And so if God isn't the author of confusion, then who is? And then number six, uh, in 1 Samuel 12, Isaiah 40, um, and, and several other passages is translated vain, vanity, and in vain. Like, like go check out those passages. And, and, and if, you, if, you, if you have an easy download, eSword or, or some kind of Bible app, and look at those words, it's a click of a mouse, friends. It's, it's really easy to do it these days. You, you just see those words that are the same word for without form of Genesis 1-2. And I, as I said, we're not going to go through all those verses, but I do want to go to one of them. Uh, right there in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18, uh, number 6 there. And there in Isaiah 45, 18, it says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. So, so it's the same context as Genesis 1-1, right? You see the same idea there. He hath established it, he created it not in vain. And, and it's the same word as without form in Genesis 1-2. God's saying, I did not create the earth without form. I did not create it in vain. So when we come to Genesis 1-2, it says that after God created the earth, it was without form, void, nothing. It was an empty place. It was a thing of naught. There was confusion. It was vain. There was vanity. But he says in Isaiah 45, I didn't, that's not the way it was when I created it. And do you remember we talked about Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, right? Again, the context is creation from the foundations of the earth. And what did we say in verse 7 that they did? Those morning stars, they sang together, and, and those sons of God, they shouted for joy. Why would those angelic beings shout for joy over confusion and vanity and a formless void? Oh, well, praise the Lord for an awesome blob of confusion and waste. Wow. Like like that doesn't make any sense. Why would they why would they shout for joy? It appears that something has happened between one one and one two to bring the earth into this chaotic state. And we don't have the time or the space uh, to cover this tonight, but I will submit to you that it was and we've actually referenced a lot of this in our Genesis study back when we were in that uh, Korean church. Um, and those messages, I believe, are available online, um, and I can get you those notes as well if you're interested in a more in-depth study of this, uh, but I will submit to you uh, that what happened was uh, God's judgment upon Lucifer uh, after he fell in the earth, uh, his judgment on the second heaven, along with a third of the sons of God uh, that followed him in his rebellion, and that's why you see all throughout Psalms and Job and several other places these waters that are in the heaven. And God having to beat out and stretch out an expanse, a firmament. Like, like, why were those waters there in the first place? 
And, you know, a lot of people who, who object to this, this, this position, um, you know, say that, well, you're just looking for a long period of time to make room for, for the fossil record and, and for evolution and things like that. And listen, I, tell, I promise I'm not trying to make room for anything. Okay, I, I don't have an agenda here. I, I'm just trying uh, to, to let the Bible be the Bible. All right, I'm not trying to make the Bible agree with science and archaeology. Uh, I feel like those dudes would, would be good to stop whatever, what junk they're doing. And, and the Bible, get with the Bible, because it's been teaching science a lot longer than they have. And, and so that's not the agenda. That's not the issue. The issue is comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's what the issue is. And again, that's why Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. He didn't even create the seas yet. Why? Where? What waters? And again, I would submit that, that biblically speaking, comparing Scripture with Scripture, um, I, I can get some of those to you, um, but that's what that's what he was doing there uh, it, it, with that that um, judgment of of Lucifer and his rebellion. Uh, it's what Second Peter chapter three talks about there in verses three through seven. Uh, listen to this, uh, and we're going to land it here. Uh, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, "Huh, where's the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Since way back before the ancestors died, things are just going on as normal. Verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, watch, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Okay, that's the original earth. Whereby the world, verse 6, that then was being overflowed with water perished. So, so that word perish, just so we're clear, means to, to put out of the way entirely. To abolish, to kill, to ruin. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now meaning since the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters there in Genesis 1-2, and God recreated the earth in verses 3 through 31, there are chapter 1. By the same word, are though they, it, they're kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And, and I've heard preached and taught uh, that this is Gen- um, Noah's flood, Right? Um, and I'll just quickly submit to you three reasons why it cannot be Noah's flood. And um, uh, you don't have to get all of this down. I don't even know if I put some of it up there or not, but just maybe jot a few things down. Number one, uh, when Noah's flood occurred, nowhere does it say that God came down to the earth, okay? And that's important because if you look in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, the, the issue what that is being mocked and the scoffers are talking about his coming, him coming to the earth, that second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. And so we're comparing that event with this flood or this, um, yeah, this flood. And so nowhere in Genesis um, 7, 8, 9 there in, with Noah's flood, n- none of that did God ever physically come down like he will at his coming. Number two, verse 4 in Second Peter 3, 3, or excuse me, 3, 4, talks about the beginning. It says, uh, um for since the fathers all then continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 
listen, Noah's, Noah was 16, about 1,600 years after creation. This is not the beginning of creation that Second Peter chapter 3 is talking about. And then number three, uh, I would submit to you verses 6 through 7 with the word perished. Okay, the earth did not perish. The world did not perish in Noah's flood. Well, for one, eight people were saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Noah's heavens and earth did not perish. The heavens and the earth of Noah's flood, um, are, the heaven and earth of today are the same ones of Noah's day. Now, things have changed after the flood. It's the same heaven, same earth. And so what Second Peter 3 is teaching us is that there are three sets of heaven and earth. Uh, the heaven and earth that then was is the original heaven and earth of Genesis 1-1. The heaven and earth which are now in uh, chapter, or 2 Peter 3-7 is the heaven and earth of the recreation of Genesis 1-13-31. Right? That's the one that are, is now that we are in. And then number three, the heaven and earth which will be in the future, which verse 13 talks about, uh, is this new heaven and this new earth of Revelation 21.1. And I didn't go to the Second Peter 3.13, but you can see that there, uh, that it talks about that. So, so listen, I'm, we're done? 